Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Thank you for being with us on this first Sunday of this new year. Don't take that for granted at all. And we are beginning this year in a series at the very beginning of the Bible. Encourage you to embark with us, walk with us, journey with us in this series of Genesis. This is a series that God placed in my heart about a year ago. And I realized I had never preached. I've preached from Genesis, but I never systematically preached specifically from probably the most important chapters of Genesis, which is Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 11, including Genesis 11. I've never preached on that. I've never systematically gone through that. And so I began to prepare my own heart as to, was this something just for me or was this something for our family, our church family? I believe this also very much relates to others. And as you might bring, because people are interested in our origins. People are interested, church, non-church, interested in, in where we came from uh, because getting our head around that helps us to understand where we're going. And so Genesis is very key. But I thought I'd start today off just a little bit of humor because if we can't laugh at some of the things around Genesis, we will cry. I hope not to have too many tears in the next few weeks, but we will uh, find that there's some great gravity and weight in this book of Genesis. So I thought I'd start with a bit of humor. Let's start with a bit of humor here. Uh, Here's a question for you. On the ark... Noah probably got milk from the cows. What did he get from the ducks? Go ahead. Crackers. (laughs) Who is the fastest runner in the race? Adam. He was the first in the human race. And I'm going to stop with this one. What did Adam say on the day before Christmas? It's Christmas Eve. I like that last one. Okay. Genesis chapter 1. Go with me, please. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is going to be a teaching, so I'm going to be trying to stay close to things that I have been feeling important as we begin to try to go through the text. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts after you get a hold of our minds. That, Lord, you would bring the dichotomy of those together and that we would embrace our faith with the knowledge of your word. Lord, I pray that your word would become real, powerful, and active in these next few days, and that, Lord, you would help us to answer questions that we have that maybe we have been led astray. Lord, I pray that you would correct our theology. I pray that, God, wherever we are, that we would align our lives with what your word says and what you are saying. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The name Genesis. We'll start there. 
The name Genesis goes back a few centuries before Christ when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek to produce the Septuagint. Genesis means origins. And it deals with the generations. This summarizes the point of Genesis. The point of Genesis is that Genesis is the origin of everything. And it really is. Genesis is the origin of time itself, of space, of matter, of our earth that we live, of, quite frankly, our entire universe. The origin includes the beginning of life, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, death, redemption. Indeed, all our foundational doctrines rest with Genesis. All our morals, all the rights and wrongs and our morality of our faith is found in Genesis. It didn't come up later. It didn't start in the New Testament. It started in Genesis chapter 1. The other books of the Bible consistently, the 66 books, validate that the author of the first five books was Moses. Jesus himself would state that Moses was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give Genesis. Genesis is a book of history. I'm going to say that again because this is an area of contention. Genesis is a book of history. We often think Genesis in the Bible is theology, and it is. But it's Genesis is a book of history. It discusses things that actually happened in a way that accurately portrays events. They happened the way Genesis said they happened. It's history. Secondly, Genesis is a book of theology. These historical events tell us about the nature of God and how he has intervened in history. You see, theology is meaningless if you can't attach it to history. I'm going to say that theology is meaningless if it does not have historical background. It must have true, accurate historical background. The series is not simply going to be a series in the next few weeks of a chronology of teachings of Bible stories in Genesis. We know those stories. If you've gone to church a few times, you know those stories. I'm not going to reiterate those stories. We will be touching on some of them. But the stories are meant to be in the context of Genesis as history. Genesis is important for us to study today because Genesis addresses a very real problem we have now more, though, more so than ever in our 21st century. As we come upon year 2020, we've got some major, some major obstacles to overcome with some false belief systems that is prevalent certainly in the world, and there's atheists and there's agnostics and there's multiple religions outside of Judeo-Christianity. But outside of that, even within the context of the church community, there's all kinds of beliefs right now when it comes to faith. And the problem with that is not everything is equal. Not all roads lead to Rome. Not all beliefs lead to salvation. And if I were to meet with my colleagues in the Christian churches in Aurora, just Aurora, there would be differences, serious differences in views in some of the churches when it comes to the authenticity and validity of the writings of Scripture, and particularly Genesis. 
So we have gathered together, and we've come from all different church backgrounds, from all different teachings. I get that. So this makes it, I think, very important for us to go back to the beginning, go back to the beginning of Scriptures, and begin to look at what Genesis says systematically. Now, here's the problem. An increasing number of people are seeing the Bible as irrelevant today. Therefore, because the Bible's not really that relevant, being relevant to life society, morality is being challenged. We do what we want to do. We do what we feel is good. We do what we feel that this is our right to do it. I need to be me. When we in the church tell people to trust in God, trust in Jesus, when the church tells people to that such things as, when we tell people that taking another's life, either at the beginning of life, before a child is born, or taking a life at the end of life if you're suffering or you want to die, we teach that that's wrong. We teach in the church community that sexual relations outside of a marriage of one man, one woman, is not according to God's plan and can't be blessed. But more and more folk are not listening to that, seeing that the message of Jesus and morality that we preach, it comes from a book that's not trustworthy. Therefore, we're dismissing those teachings. We pick and choose the teachings we want. That's a problem. If I was to ask, if you were to ask any of our Christian education workers, maybe in our Sunday school or in our midweek children's program or in our students' ministry, if you were to ask the question, do you, in your teaching in Christian ministry, do you teach things like biology, geology, astronomy, anthropology, chemistry, physics, what do you think the answer would be? No. No, we, no, we don't teach that. Well, what do you teach? We teach the Bible. We teach God. We teach salvation. So where do the students learn biology, anthropology, physics, chemistry, geology? Well, they go to school for that. They go to school for those teachings. Well, over 90% of our schools are government-run. And as government-run schools, the government has, at one time, our schools were run on the principle of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Matter of fact, you can go back into the 1800s and find that the principles taught in school were the principles coming straight out of Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 11. That is not the case in government schools today. In government schools today, Genesis, or the Bible... Or faith is to be separated from our education. So we are learning in our schools that biology, geology, astronomy, anthropology, chemistry, that's science. That's history and science. We can track that. And there's a separation then. Let's keep religion separated from us. Because the Bible doesn't teach those things. The Bible teaches us about God and faith. Religion if you need it, or whatever religion you may want. So therefore, is there any wonder that because of over 90% of our kids go to these schools, statistics are saying now that 70 to 90%, 70 to 90% of our children coming from our churches 
when they graduate from post-secondary school, no longer attend our churches. Problem. Because there is a disconnect in the belief that Genesis, or any of the Bible, is relevant to science, is relevant to biology and, and geology and anthropology and physics and chemistry. It's, it's irrelevant to all of those things. Church, I want to suggest that Genesis is the most relevant book when it comes to involving biology, geology, astronomy, physics, anthropology, chemistry. It is relevant to that. In our study, we are going to look at Genesis in answering some of those questions because Genesis is not science. As a matter of fact, Genesis answers the questions of all of the things we just talked about. If we study Genesis, we get answers to science. Interesting. Now, I'm not proclaiming I'm an expert on this. As a matter of fact, far from it. But I put right into this series that we begin to talk about some things. And again, I have been, I've been uh, eating on this for quite some time. That next month, I'm going to be bringing in an expert. And he's going to spend a Sunday with us. And he's going to, he's going to put a table of, of resources that you can dig in as deep as you want. Here's the cool thing that really helped me appreciate the power of Genesis. My daughter, and I've shared this before, my daughter... Uh, adult daughter, she was pursued by this young man back a number of years ago, I don't know, eight years ago, and, or seven years ago maybe, and uh, this young man pursued her. They, they met, and he was an, an engineering degree guy, and, and she was into small business degree, uh, and he, he took a fancy in her and began to pursue her, and she quickly discovered that he was an atheist, proclaiming atheist. And so red lights went off on Carissa, my daughter's head, and she knew, number one, she should not get involved in a relationship with the person who was an atheist, and secondly, her dad would kill her. <laughs> Probably the second was more fearful than the first. So, but that didn't stop because I've always encouraged my family and others that we need to be good friends with people who are questioning the faith because most of us started there too in questioning the faith, and we needed somebody to walk with us in walking through questions and answers. And so she knew that, and so she had a friendship with him. And she said in her mind, she's very stubborn, very determined, and she said in her mind that she would win him to the Lord. She imagined salvation for him. And so in virtually all their conversations rotated back to Genesis. And she began to talk because he questioned the existence of God and she went back to Genesis chapter 1. And she began to go through and talk about Genesis. And because he's an engineering mind, mathematically driven, he began to look at the evidence. He had always been told there really was no evidence. Churches, religion talks about God for those who need him. But that was not to be a part of his life. He grew up in a secular environment, no Christians in his family. And so he began to pursue the evidence that after a number of months, I can tell you the date I've shared, the date that he was in the church, I was preaching, and I came to the place at the end of the sermon. This is after months of her back and forth with him. And I came to the end of the message and I asked, who wants to be saved? And his hand went up. And I thought he didn't understand me because I knew the story behind the story. And 
So I explained, well, you're going <laughs> to, I really painted it, you're going to suffer for Christ. You know, and I just kind of, he wasn't convinced on an emotional level. He could convinced on a factual level that God existed and he needed his sins forgiven. And after, even after, I tell you, even after he did this, I went and sat beside him at the end of the service. We dismissed everybody and I still wasn't convinced. And I still talked with him. And, and two things, I wanted to make sure he understood what it was when he made the decision to follow Jesus. And I wanted to make sure, number two, that still didn't mean he could date my daughter. <laughs> now the point was, they did marry and he is now a youth leader. He's a youth worker. He's leading kids. He has gone on in the things of the Lord. He is a delight. It was a delight this Christmas at home. I asked him, Ryan, would you lead us in prayer? And he launched into prayer over the meal. There's facts that we need to prove in the areas of Genesis. It explains itself in our 21st century. Because we're starting to catch up to what Genesis was describing with some basic things. You see, the Bible informs us that death entered the world after sin. This affects geology, paleontology, it's the fossil life and science. You see, the world tells us there, there never was a flood. The world tells us that death has always been from the beginning of life, millions and billions of years ago. When life began, it died, and new life died, new life died. They may ascribe that there might be an intelligent design in there somewhere. They might give that, they may not give that. But that life and death was from the beginning. The Bible teaches there was a global flood. And the global flood bears on the massive quantity of sedimental rocks, sedimentary rocks, and the formation of most of the fossils. Therefore, life began with God, and the description of fossil life can be described in the global flood. Well, the world teaches us that, that uh, various races of people evolved from ape-like ancestors millions of years ago. The Bible teaches that the first man was formed from dust and that all people descended from that first man that was formed from dust. The world teaches that earlier animals and plants evolved into radically different kinds. They moved into different species, families, and kinds. The Bible teaches that God created distinct kinds. God created families of animals. He created plants to reproduce after their kind. A kind cannot go into another kind. The world teaches that matter by itself produces code systems in our body, our cells, our atoms, our DNA. And therefore, matter by itself can produce those code systems. But the Bible teaches that Life forms came into being fully functioning at the will of an infinite creator. And at the moment he spoke it into being, he provided the coding system that we now call DNA. And it's been consistent. Here's the point. Genesis history encompasses geology, biology, anthropology, and all those things. If you carefully follow it through, it will lead you right through to the cross of Jesus and why he came it naturally progresses right on through. And so when we read that text this morning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is essential to the plan of God. It's essential to our salvation. It's essential that we understand this really, literally took place. There have been attempts, and even in the church community, to water this down with some errant teachings. And I want to share some of them because we need to see them for what they are. We need discerning. Some errant teachings. Number one, some people say that the days here in Genesis, when you go in the six days of creation, day one, day two, day three, day four, we're going to really get into that more next week. But when we go through the days of creation, the days of creation really should be understood as eons, not days, eons of time. And that God stepped in to do some of the more incredible variables of things like making trees and making people, but that the days are to be seen as eons of times, millions of years worth. This is actually called progressive creation. The phrase is progressive creation, in that God progressively created over, therefore, evolution and, 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 a, and a God can coexist. God kind of got it going and then let evolution develop over the millions and billions of years. It's called progressive creation. Second errant teaching is that Genesis is a mere literary device. I've sat down with other clergy around this. That Genesis is a literary device, a framework upon which hangs important theological training. And the way maybe to describe this is like clothes that hang on a clothesline. The clothes are really the most important thing, not the clothesline. So church, don't talk about the clothesline, just talk about the clothes. In other words, it talks about the important things that the church needs to concern itself is that there was life. Don't try to concern yourself with how we came. Well, there's a problem with that. Literary, in other words, the Genesis is, is just, it's good literature, but it's myth, mythological in content. It's just important to know that we now exist and what are we to do now. Well, that's not true. It is important to understand the clothesline behind the clothes. Number three, others have used evolution to make everything fit. You can't watch a television show. You can't go somewhere and hear it and see it without seeing somewhere in this. It's called theistic evolution. That, again, the coexistence of God may be a, uh, with this billions of years. That, in essence, Genesis has no relevance to understanding the history of the universe. It's, it, it's a type of a myth. Really, science is how the universe came into being. The Bible tells us why. Science tells us how? I want to suggest the Bible tells us how as well. There are two separate domains of knowledge. These views have serious repercussions. Here's why the repercussions are huge. These are not small. These are played out in, in the problem we talked about earlier, why people are not seeing the relevancy of Scripture, the relevancy, relevancy of salvation, and the relevancy of a full commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the salvation of their sins. Here's the problem. If we believe in any of those things, number one, it undermines the goodness of God. The goodness of God. We sing about God's goodness. We talk about God's goodness. My wife is talking about a coworker of hers, and she's been having a number of reversals in life lately. A number of problems that she's facing. And it creates an opportunity for greater witness, but the problem is, is 
that when she begins to open up and talk about her life and spiritual things, quickly the response is, well, God's behind all this suffering. The response is, God's not good. He's responsible for this. At the thrust and foundation of evolution, that's exactly what it's saying. God's not good. And the Bible says God is good. At the foundation of evolution is God has created, if there is, bad and suffering into his creation. Genesis says God created it perfectly good. Where the bad came in was called sin. That's the beginning of the bad. But God created good. And so the repercussions of embracing both evolution, the theistic evolution, theistic uh, creation, is that it undermines the goodness of God. Often it comes around, I mean, how can you believe in a loving God when there's so much suffering in the world? And sometimes the suffering is animals suffer. How, how, why would God create animals to suffer? How could he do this? According to Genesis, though, when God created, we see in Genesis God created everything good, and when he came to humans, and humans suffer, God even says they were created very good. So did God say suffering's good? There's a challenge. Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, we'll talk a little bit about this later. But in verse 29, God says, I give you, this is to Adam, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give every green plant for food. God started us off where we did not eat meat. He started us off that we ate. There was no suffering when we began to eat. He started us off. We read of it in chapter 1, verse 29, and verse 30, the plan that God had for mankind. It was human sin that brought death, death to us, death to animals, death to his creation. We see it in Genesis 3. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul is talking about this. And Paul says that all of creation, not just people, but all of creation, groans in its bondage of sin's decay. And all of creation awaits a day that is forthcoming of redemption. There's a day of redemption coming. And creation waits to be redeemed. In reality, we live in a corrupt world because of our sin. But it was not created that way by God. Sin did this. However, if you believe God created over spans of millions of years, billions of years, then he's decidedly not good. In such a view, God has sanctioned death, disease, cruelty, and suffering because he put it into play millions of years ago, long before Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, God couldn't have said it was very good. So if we believe in anything outside of the literary genesis, the literal genesis, we undermines the goodness of God. Secondly, it undermines the gospel. It undermines the good news. The New Testament clearly teaches that the reason that Jesus came and died and rose again depends on real historical events that took place way back in Genesis. The reason he came started back in Genesis. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. It says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. 45, verse 45, but later says, Jesus calls, Jesus is called the last Adam because he came to undo the works of the first Adam, first Adam in Genesis. But he's referred to as the last Adam. The first Adam, sin came into all the race. But the last Adam, Jesus, undoes the power of sin and sets the state for redemption that this world would then one day, we're still waiting, one day would be fully redeemed of the repercussions of sin. Our Redeemer has come and we have salvation in Him, but we still live in the repercussions of sin until the day of the second coming. Then that is answered in the second coming. Therefore, false views of Genesis, the repercussions says it undermines the goodness of God. It undermines the gospel. Jesus doesn't have to come if it, the first Adam didn't have to be dealt with by Christ. The serious repercussions is it undermines eschatology. Eschatology means end times. The Bible speaks of a future where the present order will be destroyed and God will make a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more suffering and pain. Former things will have passed away. But if God created things with death, if he created things with suffering as a part of his creative order, then why would he change his mind to want to fix it later? He made a mistake if he did that. It undermines the end times. Why does Revelation want to remove the Genesis curse of death and pain if a good God created death and pain? Lastly, false views of Genesis has serious repercussions because it undermines a word we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how we understand the Bible. If Genesis cannot be understood as historically accurate, then what does that say for any of the rest of the Bible? If Genesis, and how do we know Exodus is any good? How do we know there was a literal exile to the Babylonians? How do we know any of the New Testament can be taken literally? How do we know there was a literal birth of Jesus Christ? There was a literal death and a literal resurrection. Again, I have sat around tables with colleagues of mine and they have denied that Jesus literally rose from the dead. They have denied that there was a virgin birth of Christ. They deny that. And they will get me in there behind pulpits this morning. They deny that. And their denial is encrypted in part of theistic, theistic creation. Where we've coupled it together that God, the literary aspect of the Bible, can't be taken historically and accurately chapter by chapter. So how do we put our trust in anything else in Scripture? And if we lose trust in that, then we lose trust in morality. So the conclusion, our text began, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created it. We're going to talk about how that unwraps, but Psalms 14, verse 1 the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. You see, here's what follows. If the scriptures cannot be taken historically and literally, 
then we cannot put our faith and our trust in the relevancy of the Scripture for today. Then we're left up to our own devices as to what is right and what is wrong. We're left up to the vote of democracy. God forbid. The vote of democracy to determine what's right and what's wrong. And when we remove God and the literalness of God and what he says, if we remove that, then we remove good deeds. We remove goodness. We remove blessings. We remove uh, uh, the things that are, are morally upright. Then there will be stealing, murder, uh, disregard of those and injustices. There will be all of that in the morality of the hearts of the people. I think probably the best illustration is in the book of Judges. We get through the first five books of the Bible, and then in the early stages, people who once turned to God turned away from Him. And they began to deny God. They began to turn their hearts away from Him. And at the end of Judges, a book of Judges, Judges is all about, they had different judges to try to rule the people and to try to guide the people back to God, but many of the judges were corrupt. And so people just did their own thing. They just did their own thing. And the end of Judges Verse 20, chapter 21, 25, it says, and everyone, it closes off, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it ended an era in which they needed redemption. So, the premise of our study. Number one, Genesis can be read as both historical and theological. Got to get that into our hearts. It is a history lesson. And this means six things. That death entered the world after sin, a specific time, and it was called sin. When sin, clearly defined, is when we have turned away from God and gone our own way. Death entered at that time and explains all death. The scene is historical and theological, also states that there was a global flood. That explains the formation of fossils and the changes on this planet. They were huge. Next, God made the first man from dust, and all other humanity came from that one man. Next, that God in that, he created distinct families of animals and plants to reproduce after their own kind. Next, that life forms came into being, fully functioning at the will of an infinite creator who provided a coding system. We're going to spend a bit of time on how amazing our DNA coding system is. That is, is one of the greatest scientific proofs against evolution. It's just our own body. And next, the Genesis encompasses biology. You can learn biology by studying Genesis. You will learn geology by studying Genesis. You will learn astrology by studying Genesis. You will learn anthropology and physics and chemistry by studying Genesis. Because it talks about that. And there's an amazing amount of 21st century uh, Evidence, as my son-in-law discovered, that backs up the claims of Genesis 1 to 11. Genesis can be both historical and theological. Next, Genesis proves God is good. God is good. And it's at the core and the foundation of who he is. That God is good. I may not, I'm, but God is good. Next, that Genesis demonstrates the need for the good news. It demonstrates that we needed a Savior. We needed a Redeemer. We needed someone to get us back to where sin had destroyed us. Next, that Genesis makes sense of the end times. 
of where this is all going. And lastly, Genesis gives validity to all scriptures, all of God's word. That God's word is inerrant. God's word is accurate. God's word is unchangeable. God's word transforms. As we embark in this series, I invite you to open your heart and with a new set of lens, let's reread Genesis. Not out of the framework of what maybe what we've been taught of mixed in with evolutionary teachings and theories. That dilutes it and it, and it destroys. It destroys salvation if we do that. Salvation no longer says, that's why, that's why students are leaving the church left and right. Because they cannot reconcile that the evidence here is enough proof in, in answering life's questions about who we are and where we're going. So Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. And it all starts there. And Lord, as we begin to unwrap this in the next few weeks, that Lord, you would help us to marry our minds and our hearts. That Lord, our minds, as we begin to look at evidence, we begin to look at reason, we begin to look at some practical things taking place, that there are answers to these questions, but that God, it never just resides between our ears. God, I pray, let it ride to our heart. That Lord, in our heart, our faith will become alive again. That Lord, our worship will explode before you. That Lord, our good deeds before others will come as a result of our study of your history of mankind, this world, and this universe. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all you have done. And God, we put our faith, as we declared earlier, I believe that, Lord, we will put our trust. We will test. Lord, you said test and see that the Lord is good. So, Lord, we will test these things, and we know that you are faithful to prove yourself to hearts that seek you with all good intent. We thank you for that. The blessings on each one, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.